Hi, welcome to the Path of Longevity show. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Sidoroff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Rob Lufkin. Rob? Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. I'm so excited today. We're going to be talking about a new book that just dropped called Beyond Longevity. This is a preprint that uh, Steve and I have both reviewed and we love it. And today we're so fortunate to be joined by the author of this book, Jason Prawl. And Jason, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Yeah, yeah we are very interested in in the work that you're doing, the book that you just uh, published. And like many people who get involved in these kinds of areas, we know that for you, it started with some of your own personal uh, challenges. Can you talk about that and how that got you into this field? Yeah, absolutely. I was a mechanical engineer. That was the profession that I thought I was going to be pursuing and and did so for 10 years. And um, it was actually my, my health issue started at 13 years old. I had chronic knee pain at 13. I was an athlete and I was told that it was uh, too much wear and tear, right? too much movement. And I'm like, I'm 13. There's there's people playing professional hockey and professional basketball. And how is it possible that, that I, as a 13-year-old, could be you know suffering from something like this? That doesn't make sense, right? So the answers that I got from the traditional medical profession at that time just didn't make any sense, even to my you know underdeveloped 13-year-old uh, brain, right? And so uh, that's where it started. I it kind of, I, I planted a flag and kind of like just really thought something's not right here. And so every time I went to the doctor and saw a, a traditional uh, medical doctor, I was always skeptical, right? And, and it's not to say I didn't get value out of uh, the doctor and, and there's tremendous uh, value in the medical profession, but I always, that, that planted the skeptical seed in me. And, and so as the years developed and I developed another chronic uh, condition in my early 20s, skin condition, and again, I, I, I couldn't find the right answers in the places that I was looking. So it forced me to kind of look elsewhere and discover a little bit more about what was happening, what might be causing these symptoms. And ultimately, that's what I realized, right? That these were symptoms, that there was an underlying um, imbalance somewhere in my psyche, in my gut, in my habits, something somewhere, or perhaps multiple things. And of course, eventually, that's what I realized was that there was a layered uh, layered issues that I needed to tackle and, and, and ways that I was living that weren't harmonious to health. And so that's really, as I began to uncover this and unpeel that onion and discover a little bit more of the deeper layers about what health is and what disease is, um, I, I found an interest in it. I, I you know, was kind of the person that everybody went to to ask questions if they had issues. And ultimately, I figured out that I had a passion for this and I could help people. And, and I really wanted to get people out of this broken system that they were stuck in just taking medication after medication after medication. And as they get older, it just gets worse and worse, right? And we, we know how that story goes. And so um, that became my, my drive was to um, help people recover some of their, their life um, and ultimately studied um, functional medicine, never became a, a doctor in, in that way, but I studied all the same thing. So I was running metabolic tests and, and uh, gut tests and doing all the functional lab work I learned to think like a functional doctor and I had the engineering sort of systems thinking as a sort of natural capacity. And so it all sort of made sense to me um, to think about this stuff. It was very complex and it still is. Um, but that's really how I kind of got into this um, and learned to think about 
what health is, where it came from. And so it was, it was working with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people over the course of, of many years that I learned really what was going on in our Western society that was causing so much of the health issues that I was seeing. Yeah, I love I love the your your story there, and we're hearing that from so many people in this space that um, they were when traditional medicine essentially failed them, um, they and and they developed these conditions themselves, and they they sought their own answers and 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 really were found truth in in uh looking for these things it's 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 a great story and it's it's a familiar one that we've heard at least the the approaches for it Bef- today we're going to talk about a lot of things but we're going to focus on longevity as as the ultimate factor here before we before we dive into your book and all maybe could you take a moment and just tell us a little bit about how you conceptualize longevity because it's Mm. people still don't agree on why we age what are the factors that drive it and uh what's what's it all about yeah i mean we could all discuss it internally here and probably disagree like there's so much going on that i don't even think we fully know what's happening right and we have what i would say sort of largely categorized as sort of programmed theories of aging and then we have the sort of damaged theories of aging and and my thoughts are after thinking a lot about it um is that there's probably both happening right that there's two aspects to this that we know damage is is playing a, a a huge role in the sort of acceleration of what we would call aging but then we have to kind of back up all together and say well what is aging? How do we even define aging? Right? And this is something I asked um, probably 70 or 80 uh, experts uh, of all kinds, medical experts, health experts, and, and I got different answers. No, nobody can actually define aging. And I don't even know that there is a consensus definition of what aging is. Um, I think it's really interesting that we can go from a, a zygote and develop this unbelievable complexity over the course of months and years and and repair and uh, add this unbelievable uh, development of a human. And then at some point, it just kind of fails or breaks down or doesn't keep up or something like, there, you know, in physics, we have this idea of, of entropy, right? That things just kind of decay to a neutral state. Well, there's something weird about life, which is there's this neg entropy. There's this opposite effect, but we organize, we have this coordination happening. We resist the natural uh, sort of entropy that, that might occur. So it's, it's very strange when you think about what's really going on. And, and, you know, we have stem cell exhaustion, right? So stem cells uh, have this sort of youthful like state and, and they do amazing things. But why do we run out? How do we even make stem cells, right? There's very interesting things when you think about what aging is and how it all unfolds. And so to me, I, I'm still left with more questions than answers at this point. And I think a lot of times we can make these leaps about what aging is, how long we should live. Is it a disease itself? Right. Um, I think these are interesting conversations that we're now having. And I think we're having them because we're in this sort of regenerative medicine paradigm now where we have tech and, and biology meeting in this very interesting place. And we're using biologics, um, like stem cells, uh, like, uh, peptides. And we're, we're, we're inducing regenerative capacity of humans with our own tissues, right? Which is really, really interesting. But the question I always have is, well, why is that not keeping up? At what point 
do we start losing the capacity to sort of maintain this harmony within our biology? Where does it break down? Why does it break down? And how do we slow that process? So I'm kind of of the opinion that there is this programmed aspect to our lives, that there's a sort of a, a timeline, so to speak, and that we can either accelerate that and, and age more rapidly, so to speak, and accumulate all this damage and disease processes, um, both at the cellular level, at the tissue level, and uh, holistically. And if we do things correctly, if we live in a way that is harmonious with what health is, with what, what our biology wants to sort of do as its natural state, then we can extend that. But I'm still unsure of how, how much longer beyond, let's say, 120 is it possible for us to extend? Like, I, I really don't know, and I don't know that we have a lot of evidence, right, to, to really suggest that. And one of the things I point out in the book is, you look at, at, at wildlife, right? You look at a lion um, in the wild. It has kind of a maximum lifespan, that it, and an average lifespan, and we can look at that. And then if you pull a lion into captivity, we can actually extend that lifespan for a variety of reasons. So there seems to be some play, right, with all organisms, but they all kind of follow a same pattern, right? So there's something underlying a species, uh, the biological processes that kind of dictates how long that life is. And so, so I think these are the things that I like to think about, and, and, and I don't have the answers. Um, I rely on, on really smart people like you to do all this research for me, and I try to interpret it. Um, but, but I think that's where, you know, there's really interesting discussions um, right now to be had around this idea of, of what aspect of aging is playing the, the biggest role in this process and what's controlling this sort of timeline that, that we see unfold, right? Like we all go through puberty at roughly the same time. Right? There, there's the natural human developmental aspects. And so I think this is all in consideration, not just what happens after 60 years old and beyond. Like, I'm curious about what's happening at six months, what's happening in the womb, what's happening at 13. Like, there's really interesting aspects to our development that I think is going to provide us clues around what aging really is. Yeah, yeah one quick follow-up question to the the uh, there's such such interesting points you raised, but one thing on the on the maximum lifespan is something we all wonder about, and like you say, nobody really knows. And and throughout history, humans seem to hit a wall at like 120 or so. Yeah. I mean, you know, the statistical randomness doesn't the the curve doesn't go beyond that. And exactly, you don't have these and, real big outliers, right? Like like one guy lived to 200, and we have documented exactly. evidence, right? Like that's really interesting. Exactly, and and I think it was Steve Horvath. Uh, the one group was looking at the bio, the bio uh, biological clocks and ep yeah. epigenetic DNA methylation, and they looked at all the cells of of different organisms, and they were able to calculate sort of the maximum of age. And the fascinating part that I still don't understand for humans was. First of all, they they found that all the cells of the body, except for one, uh, maxed out at about 120 for humans, except for the air cells of the cerebellum, which went to like 400 or something. Interesting. And I'm not sure what that is due to. But anyway, one more but, mystery. But I think these researchers like, like Steve Horvath and what's sort of known as the Horvath clock or these epigenetic clocks, I think this is really interesting. I think we're going to find some really valuable information as, as we keep pursuing these, these paths. And the question still remains, why does methylation and, and, and acetylation, why do these things change? You know, what is controlling the sort of global governance 
of these methylation patterns, because those those clocks that we're that we're looking at in the epigenetic um, sort of situations, they're actually just relative, right? Like they're actually not measuring; they're just not measuring it comparatively to the let's say average ninety year old, right? So if we have somebody that's sixty year old um, uh, chronologically, and we 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 look at the average biological age of a ninety year old person, now we can sort of draw comparisons, right? But that's just that's not real. That's that's just a, a relative sort of comparison, right? So again, the question still remains as we look deeper and deeper into these things, what is driving that, you know? And, and we have Yamanaka, who is another brilliant researcher who won the Nobel Prize, right? And these things known as Yamanaka factors, right? These transcription factors that can be manipulated in, in mice to turn back the the age of a cell, right? And they're they're extending the lifespan of mice. But we're much more complicated than mice, right? And and turning back the age of a cell is really interesting. And I don't know how much closer that gets us to extending the life of an organism like a human over the you know the entire lifespan. So, and again, even if we knew that stuff, is that enough, or do we still have to live in a way that is harmonious to health? Right? Can we abuse our bodies and live in a, a really disharmonious way and just rely on sort of this new technology to save us? I don't think so. You know, I think, I think, I think there's going to be sort of both uh, parts of the equation that we're going to need to get right. If we want to get to that, you know, 110, 120 years without all this degeneration um, that we see. So it's, it's fascinating. I'm super excited for the next 20 years. I can't wait to see what unfolds. Like it's really, really cool that we get to be in this part of a sort of scientific discovery, I think. Yeah. And one, uh, one last quick follow-up on that, just uh, Lucia Ronica, who's a, a researcher from Stanford uh, on DNA methylation. She said it beautifully that um, that we program in in her mind, which makes a lot of sense. We program our biological epigenetic methylation clocks by the lifestyle we lead, by the environment we expose it to. So when we open that packet of sugar and add it to our coffee we're programming our epigenetics and controlling our longevity and our aging. It was an right. interesting comment, way to think of it. Yep. Well, the, the good thing about that is that it shows us that we do have many areas of ways that we can control it. And I don't think it's the wear and tear or pro programming. Those both play a role. And I think people are all so looking in both of those directions, you know, I've suggested that we know that stress uh, speeds up the aging process, uh, increases uh, the uh, wear and tear on telomeres. Um, but on the other hand, if you embrace life, uh, if you have purpose, maybe that will extend life because of the epigenetic mechanisms involved. You talk about um, systems approach. You come from a uh, you come from the perspective of an engineer, and I would love for you to kind of talk about how you uh, you bring that kind of systems thinking to this area. Yeah, I think there's a couple ways. Like when I work with somebody who usually is coming in with autoimmune conditions, multiple food sensitivities, basically these unknown syndromes that they can't find a solution for, or even a, a name or identification for. Um, there's there's ways to organize sort of like let's say the therapeutic approach and we can use that as a as a tool for for anybody to to maintain health and i think the big ones have to do with 
what is governing our function overall? Like, what are, what are the big things? What are the big levers? And I think, and it's one of the, the early chapters I, 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 I write about in the book is, is on circadian rhythm and chronobiology, right? And, we, and the research is abundantly clear on this, right? So if we're not sleeping at the right times of the day, in other words, when the sun is down, um, and we're, we're working uh, swing shifts. And I mean, nurses and doctors, and, the, and this, is, this is a big problem in, in the medical industry that for those who are working those shifts that are all over the place, um, all cause mortality increases. Every disease um, will, will, is more likely in that scenario. And that's because we have this, this central governing factor um, in the brain and throughout our body, right? I mean, this is what's wild. We have things like you know the suprachiasmatic nucleus in, in the brain talking to the hypothalamus and the pituitary that governs and, and of course the 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 um uh, a lot of other parts of the brain actually but but it governs hormonal function right that's a huge driver and hormones are the probably the biggest lever that the body uses i mean hormones are unbelievably powerful and anybody who's taken cortisone or uh, bodybuilders who've taken um, trt and some hormone therapies like it's it, it hormones are amazing in what they can do that's that's just one big part. We also have these clocks inside every cell of our body, right? So we have these these clock genes, BMOL, you know, uh, period genes, clock genes, and they're governing the the epigenetic function of each cell. So it knows, so the thyroid, so to speak, knows which which genes to turn on, which to express and not express based on the light cycle that the that are being picked up through the eyes and on our skin. Right? And to some degree, the, what we're eating and, and, and how we're moving and all that type of stuff. So, so to me, circadian rhythm is a huge one. And, and this is something I don't need to run a hormone paddle. I don't need to look at cortisol rhythms and melatonin rhythms if I know, how you, if you, if I know you're sleeping at the wrong times of day. Like we just need to correct that first and then we can run a hormone panel and then look at your, your rhythms and your, your, your peak cortisol and all that. So I think there's, there's general ways of being that are huge, that, that sort of trump everything else. In other words, they kind of, they're going to regulate all kinds of things, gut function, right? So if your circadian rhythm's off, then your gut function is going to suffer, right? Your, your, your microbial balance, your population won't be as good uh, as if you were sleeping correctly at the right times of day. And if you're moving at the right times of day, everything is going to be shifted based on cortisol or uh, uh, chronobiology. Another part um, is is what you alluded to is this this general stress component, which this is underlying every aspect of our day, including when we're sleeping, right? So if we have um, a lot of uh, childhood trauma, if we've got a lot of things going on in the background and our nervous system is sort of jacked up, even at a restful state, right? We could be meditating or resting or, or just kind of laying on a beach and the baseline nervous system function is going to be the sympathetic drive is going to be a little bit higher in some people than others. That is a huge, huge factor, right? And then if you get triggered into a stressful response really easily and you can't come out of that stress response, then this is massive, right? So to me, like those are really, really big driving factors and people can be trying to correct gut function. You know, they say all disease starts in the gut and to some degree, I think there's a, there's an element of truth to that, but it's a partial truth, but a, a very good thing to think about. But if your nervous system can't get into a proper parasympathetic tone, then we're going to be chasing our tail, trying to correct for gut function, um, you know, all kinds of metabolic uh, issues and, and, and chaos that might be going on. And really what you need to do is figure out how to get that, that nervous system state balanced, good parasympathetic tone, 
good sympathetic and then shutting off that sympathetic, right? So this is, I think these two things are the big ones. And once we get that right, then we can start looking at, at other places um, and sort of looking in the gut and looking at, you know, liver and whatever else we might be sort of focusing on from a medical perspective. But there's, there's, there's big umbrella things that I think we really need to focus on. Yeah, this is such an important concept that both both Steve and you mentioned about stress, and and it, and it seems so so um, like really nuanced in that there um, you know we have the chronic stress that everyone agrees drives you know aging and longevity and chronic disease, all these other things, and then there's there's a, a group of people that say that acute stress, like uh, hormesis, you know, through hormesis and through other mechanisms, like the Finnish sauna study or really? or uh, ice baths or going out and exercise is acute stress, that these things are somehow beneficial and they actually reduce aging and improve longevity. How do we reconcile those differences in stress or what what makes stress good and what makes stress bad? Yeah, I, I think before I answer that too, I want to I want to mention something that, that Dr. Sidorov said, which I think is really, really important that almost trumps all of this, which is passion and purpose. So like, this is what's wild. Like you can do so many wrong things, but if you've got passion and purpose and you're happy and you're driven and you're just enjoying waking up every day, that we don't know, like it's hard to study this stuff for long periods of time. But from what I've seen, that seems to be perhaps something that can even trump doing the wrong things in a huge way. Maybe not completely, but but I think it's really fascinating, this sort of passion and purpose piece. So I just wanted to mention that because I, time and time again, it seems to be that is, especially as we get into our older years, when we're, when we're kind of losing our lust for life, we're not really sure our place, maybe friends and family have passed away. That's really a big driver, and if we can maintain this zest for life, this 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 desire to be here and show up every day, that seems to play a huge role. Now, this stress one is huge because you know when hormesis is really the the right concept that I think we can look at all this stuff through. Right, this idea of hormetic stress, which is some amount of stress is really really necessary, um, and too much stress is going to be deleterious. Now, how do we find that that sweet spot, that zone? As anybody's guess, right? You, you, the only way I figured out how to do that to some degree is to tune into my own body and listen. And we can we can measure HRV. That's a really really good way to do this. So if we measure our heart rate variability, we have a good heart rate variability score. Um, you know, there's there's trackers out there, sleep trackers that can help measure our sort of readiness or our ability to handle more stress. I think we're this is maybe the best trackable way that we can do this. And we can also listen, right? So, so some days, if I didn't get good sleep for whatever reason, um, and I'm just not feeling that great in the morning, it's probably not a good idea for me to really push it, right? And, and go exercise like crazy. Maybe better day for me to go for a walk, maybe do some yin yoga, maybe just actually rest, right? Like there's, there's a really important aspect to that. So it's not necessarily me in my overall state. It's me in this very individuated, specific context on a day or even hour by hour situation that's going to determine how hard do I push and how much recovery do I need. But that really becomes the, the key drivers. Am, am I recovered enough to be able to induce more stress with something like, um, you know, hot, cold therapy, right? Uh, uh, 
exercise to, to some huge degree, sunlight, right? These are all stressors that we can encounter. Um, even foods, right? The, these plant foods that we eat, they have lectins in them and phytates and, and all kinds of plant chemicals that are little micro stressors. And for some people, that can be too much. And so this is why I think we see in, in some capacity, a large uh, issue with food sensitivities is because we've lost the ability to tolerate these little micro stressors that we would find in plant foods. And it's hard to say, is it bad or is it good? Well, it's bad for somebody who can't handle that level of stress and has lost their, their tolerance to these, these types of foods or chemicals, right? Chemicals are another one. And so we have, humans are, are really fascinating in the sense that we can adapt to a lot of things. Like given enough um, exposure in small doses with the ability to recover um, over periods of time, we can adapt. But right now we have such a high degree of, uh, um, we have too much going on, right? There's this, this hyper stimulation that, and this novelty that we can't, we can't adapt to. So I think that's a big part of it is if we're throwing too much at our system then the stress bucket gets overfilled and we can't repair, regenerate and recover enough to then go and, and get more stress. So, so stress seems to be this really, really important factor for adaptation, for this resilient adaptation, right? And the, and the easiest example of this is something like bodybuilding, right? So it's, it's you, you go in and you lift a uh, hundred pounds and it's really hard the first time. Well, you, you do it enough with the proper recovery and every bodybuilder knows this, that recovery and sleep is absolutely essential for you to get bigger and stronger and a, and a more well-built body. So you need the nutrients, you need the, the, uh, the proper sleep, the proper recovery. And then when you do, the, the body is learning because it's an open energetic system, it's taking these energetic signals whatever they might be, your thoughts, your beliefs, the, the weights you're lifting, the food you're eating. And it's going to always try to adapt and optimize for whatever conditions are present. So it's, it's kind of what the body's doing, right? It's like optimizing for the stimulus that it's given. So if you do that in the right way, then the body can optimize for that condition in a repetitive way. So this is what's good about some of this stress. And I know there's this idea that eat lots of different foods and all that. And I think there's truth to that. And there seems to be something about this repetitive nature with the proper recovery that the body starts to optimize for the conditions that it finds itself in. So I think that's really how we have to think about this. Am I recovered? Can I induce more, more stress upon my body? And if so, my body will adapt. So it's, it's, it's really about, you know, people say, are you, are you fit? Well, fit for what? Fit for climbing a mountain? Fit for, you know, running a marathon? Fit, fit for, uh, you know, mountain biking? Fit for, what are we fit for, right? The body is going to adapt based on the, the, the stimulus that we give it so long as we have the necessary capacity to recover. And that's the biggest piece. I think you're hitting on a very important aspect of longevity, which is how we stay in a place of balance. Totally. And uh, what you're saying is if we have the conditions where we can recover from a stress, of any of any sort, then we can stay in a place of balance. It's when there's too much of a stress that interferes with us returning to or staying in a place of, of balance that we we become we get into difficulty. So I can appreciate those points. In your getting back to your own story, uh, Jason, I wonder if you can tell our audience the the 
factors that made the biggest difference in your own recovery? Mm. Honestly, for me, it was, um, it was dealing with the conditioning that, that I didn't know was there. The mental conditioning, the beliefs, the emotional, let's say, traumas, if we want to classify it as that. Um, and I had a relatively, I mean, I didn't, I didn't experience any physical abuse, any emotional abuse in any way, no, no huge neglect. But, I, but as a child, when, when we don't have the capacity to consciously understand the world and be able to process the feelings and emotions that are coming, they essentially can get caught in the system, so to speak, stuck. We're unable to process and that leads to, again, an, a, an adaptation, right? An, an ego state, so to speak, an, a fractured ego state where we build these personalities in these ways of being. And that might be the perfectionist. It might be the successful uh, person. Uh, it might be somebody who, who chases money because they need to feel safe and secure. There's all kinds of these things that they're actually we, we laud that we actually appreciate in our society. And there's other ways of being that might be uh, addictions, right? Um, whether it's food, uh, whether it's a relationship type of addiction that, that is unhealthy for us, alcohol, and there's dependencies of all kinds. But to me, for me, for, for my well-being, it came back down to that nervous system perspective. How do I get my system in a state where it can finally relax um, as I go throughout my day? And if somebody cuts me off in traffic or something doesn't go my way or you know, a big stressful event comes up, my system doesn't get hijacked and I don't, I don't completely lose myself. It may trigger me a little bit right, into some emotional state, but I come back down to, to rest. I come back down to neutral. And I see this all the time with the people that I work with and, and just walking around throughout my day is that we can get over, uh, uh, like overloaded with this sort of stress that, that is inevitably going to be there, this mental, emotional stress. And what's happening is we're, we're getting hijacked back to a, a more younger state, right? We actually go back and regress, so to speak, into a strategy that was successful when we were five or eight or whatever. And we're doing that as 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds because it was something that worked back then, right? But it's not the most optimal way of being. And so this is, for me, it was, it was retuning those ways of being, those habits, those thoughts, those beliefs, and by, by, by processing some of the old stuff, by basically growing up um, developmentally, my whole system found a new, uh, a new rest. It found a new balancing point. And, and this is why, you know, I'm seeing a lot of things now. We're, we're just, it's January 2nd here right, right now. I see a lot of this like new year, new you type of situation. And I keep thinking like, I appreciate the sentiment, but it's not new year, new you. Just because the calendar flips doesn't mean that you changed at all. You know, it's more like new habits, new you, right? So what is it that you're, what are your habits? What are your habituated thinking? What's your habituated ways of being? And how do we change those? So that to me is the core of, of let's say recovering health. If you're, if you're in a diseased state or maintaining health, it's how do I maintain a, a habituated way of being that is conducive to health. So for me, it was, I had to, I had to relearn how to, how to walk through the world. Um, not necessarily outwardly, outwardly, I may look put together to some degree, but, but internally it was chaos. And, and it, 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 it it's hard to even explain. And, and I didn't even, well, I wasn't even aware of it until I started kind of digging into some of that stuff and realizing um, who I was at my core and what I was really pursuing and why I was pursuing it. And why was I making the decisions that I was making? Why was I doing things that I knew were unhealthy, which we all do, which is really interesting. So 
we talk about what do we eat and how, how do we exercise and how do we stay up late and all these things. And yet we, we don't do them to perfection. Why? What's going on there? You know, and how do we, how do we get underneath all that? So for me, that, that's the biggest one. And the people that I work with, it's, it's, it's never not part of a problem, right? There's always areas of improvement in that sort of uh, that aspect of, of who we are and how we're expressing inside. So you, you, mentioned being able to return to a place of calm what approaches uh worked best for you to learn to get to a place of calm well i'm pretty adventurous so i i like to explore anything and everything um one of the interesting ones was things like ayahuasca so i actually sat with some of the indigenous uh, healers um, in that setting and that blew me open in a very interesting way. Um, and it allowed me to see aspects of myself um, and understand them in a different way. Um, but m- more importantly, it was actually in more of like a therapeutic type of setting. Um, and putting, putting a name to it may be difficult because it's a variety of techniques that were perhaps used. But things like um, family constellation, you know, ways that I could, um, I could understand family dynamics. I'm sitting with a, what you might call a therapist, but it wasn't a traditional therapist. It was somebody who could actually show up as the, let's say the ideal parent. In other words, reparenting um, my sort of inner child, so to speak, and the, the one that was frustrated and angry and, and, and disappointed, right? Disapp- disappointment was a big one for me as a child. I experienced disappointment a lot. And so disappointment was a was something that I carried with me for a long time. So I had to, I had to get those wounds and those sort of, um, let's say limited ways of, of understanding that were, that were with me. I had, I had to figure out how to process those and, and develop uh, more complete understandings. And so um, it was in kind of a one-on-one therapeutic setting where I got to process, understand, and, and there was literally stuff that, that was so old that I, I wasn't even aware of that I was processing in, in, in real time. And there was an aspect of me that could watch it and an aspect of me that was experiencing it, right? So it's it really cool. And I, and I think somatic um, aspects, somatic therapies of, of various kinds can be super, super helpful. Incorporating the body. I mean, I think fundamentally, this is why we dance was such a big thing across all cultures is that it was a way to express and to move the body, the energies in the body, emotions in the body. I mean, look at people dancing. They're literally just expressing emotion. And now we're starting to re-engage that in the West, Um but anything that can use the body to process emotion and, and belief and, and conditioned thoughts, um, then new ways of being start to sort of emerge out of nowhere almost. But I think a lot of it had to do with somebody that was able to reflect something back to me and allow me to, to see myself in a new way, which is really what the, the parent, that's the role of the parent, right? As, as, as young ones is to reflect this stuff back to us. And there's developmental processes that we can look at, right? Um, on individuation and figuring out who we are and our relationship to our caregivers and, and, you know, creating independence. And there's, it's a complex thing. And, uh, and, and so it was going through a lot of that again and, and doing it in a healthy way with a healthy parental sort of, uh, figure that allowed me to, to really get to the core of some of this stuff. But I mean, EMDR is a fantastic technique for, for processing things. Um, I mean, there's just, there's so many, and to me, I'm continuously exploring, um, this, this realm to, to see what else is under there so that I can continue to process because the more I do, the more I come back into better relation with myself, better relation with the person across from me, whether it's my wife or friends or 
our colleagues or anybody, I come into better relation with, with the planet and all life living beings. You know, I, I come into better relationship with what we can call God or, or anything that is bigger than me, right? This sort of grand mystery that we are. So my relation to everything has shifted because of this stuff. And it's, it's in my opinion, the most important work that we can do. I want to return to uh, something you, you said earlier a little bit. I mean, we get a lot of advice about, you know, health, longevity, we, you know, diet, sleep, exercise, which is all good and extremely valuable. We learn that, you know, if we have toxins in our lives, we remove those. If we have deficiencies, we correct those. But one thing you mentioned earlier is perhaps one of the most important factors, and they also talk about it in your book, uh, is passion and purpose in our lives. How do we get that? It comes back down to the sort of the same thing. We have to shed the conditioning. I think a, a lot of times we have a, a false sense of purpose or a false sense of passion. We're chasing something that that society um, either has sort of directly or indirectly inculcated in us, right? And this can come from, from school. This can come from social media. This can come from parental figures. This can come from celebrities and just this sort of general cultural haze, right? And, and this is what you see. You see across different cultures, different values are, are inculcated. In the, in the, and so children grow up with different sets of values. Now, why is that? It's not because they're all just somehow deciding the same thing just haphazardly based on individuated uh, consciousness, right? We're actually getting molded by our culture, by our, our, our family, by our, our society, our local society or community, right? It might be religious or it might be, you know, a, a large family or whatever it might be, but those values are instilled in us. And, and it's not that they're bad. In fact, societal values tend to, to maintain because they work on some level, right? Sort of from an evolutionary biology perspective, we can say that things stick around that kind of work. But the question is, is that for you at this point in your life, are you pursuing the thing that you really feel passionate about, like from your core, from who you really are? And so for me, I was an engineer. I was making good money. I bought a house. I did all the things that I thought would provide stability, happiness, you know, uh, keep things interesting. And then I woke up one day um, and finally recognized the things that I was feeling inside of me were because I was off track from what sort of some people might say my soul wants to do. But but really it was like, what, who who am I? And, and, and there wasn't enough of me discovering who I really was and what I was here to do and what I, what I got excited about. And so I think that's, it, it comes down to shedding some of the, the conditioning that, that, we just naturally pick up. And again, we, cause it, it comes back down to the core stuff, right? We want to feel safe, right? We want to feel connected and accepted and loved, right? That's what we're looking for as young ones um, for most of our life. And even as adults, we're still wanting those things. So, so all of our decisions are essentially based on those things, right? How do I feel connected, love, safe? These very basic things. And so um, based upon those natural desires and, 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 important aspects of who we are, we kind of chase some things and we wind up in a place that we didn't realize where we're at. And we go, oh my God, I'm 35. What am I doing with my life? Right? You see this with midlife crisis. That's kind of the, the, the thing that's happening there. So I think it's, it's, it's going inside. It's, it's dismantling some of the conditioning, but also just, I think, consistently asking yourself really, what is it that you want? Um, and sometimes that's a, it's a very difficult question to answer. I, I, can, I still ask myself that. Um, what is it that I really want? Am I waking up each day excited about my day? And if the answer is no, that's a pretty good indication that, that there's an opportunity to, uh, to find something else, to explore different territory. 
um, to see if you can ignite some passion and purpose somewhere. But that's really a big part of it is, can I explore my way out of this? Um, if I'm not happy, if I don't feel like I'm living in, in a purposeful, passionate way, then how do I at least just go try to explore and figure out something, stumble across something that I might find interesting. But, but one of the, one of the fascinating things I asked a 94 year old lady this, um, and I said, you know, look, most of your family is, is passed away or they they don't live here anymore. Um, you're 94. <laughs> what gets you up? What gets you excited every day? You know? And she said, well, I've got to learn this song for the violin class on Thursday. And I thought, what an amazing, brilliant answer that is. And, and that shows you that you can find passion and purpose and interest in anything, no matter how big or small. So I think this is one of the things that we, we really have an opportunity to, to retool a little bit is that this idea of passion and purpose doesn't have to be this sort of Elon Musk style, grandiose, change the world vision, purpose, and, and life story. It can be something so small. It can be in your grandchild. It can be in learning something for the violin class. It can be in the most modest and humble and beautiful aspects of life, but there, there needs to be an interest. And, and that comes from within, wherever it comes from, it's, it's something worth following. And I think that's, it's just about listening um, to really what's going on inside. Yeah. Uh, one of the things you're highlighting is a more present centered totally. living from what's going on right here and now as opposed to what you also identified, which is the conditioning. And um, one of the ways that I refer to that is that there's a mismatch between the environment we adapted to, which is our childhood environment, and the environment we live in now. Um, We're conditioned, as you identified, to the past. And one of your chapters is about one aspect of that, which is uh, stuck emotions, mm. because that's one of the ways that we are adapted to the past and we are sort of anchored back in the past. How do you uh, advise, suggest, or in your own work, um, unsticking uh, your emotions, getting past or, or processing stuck emotions? Yeah, I love this. Um, this is this is this is what drives me right now. And my my this point in my life is is uncovering this stuff and working with this stuff because it's so so interesting. And first, I think we have to get um, we, we got to get familiar with them. We got to get in touch with them. We can't bypass them. We can't push them aside, neglect them. We can't move past them. We've actually got to go back into those sort of emotions or processes or uh, mental states, however we want to classify that, we've actually got to get in touch with those again. And ideally, we get in touch with them in a safe way, perhaps with another nervous system that's that can help us um, revisit these things. So, so either we're walking through our day and something sn- puts us back there automatically because it's an adaptive strategy, right? And so we're going to go back there, right? As we're walking through it, I, I still go back there every day. I'm getting put back into some situation that that kicks me into a, a mental or emotional state of a four-year-old or a nine-year-old or a 12-year-old or whatever the case is. And so now with a little bit of awareness, I can actually, I can actually catch that during the day. And I say, oh, here I am. This is like a little eight-year-old version, and I don't put I don't put ages to it. But but there's a little younger version of me that's still operating from a limited perspective, that gets a little upset or gets a little sad or feels isolated or whatever the case is. Um, that that will kick up. Now I can bring awareness to that in real time, even if I don't 
do anything with it. Just becoming aware of it and understanding it can be beneficial over the course of, of months or years. But ideally, in a sort of more therapeutic setting with somebody who can help me process these things, and it can be a loved one, it can be a partner, it can be somebody, it doesn't have to be a, a professional of any kind necessarily, but somebody that can hold that space, let's say, as I'm using a new age term, but somebody who can just kind of be there with me, allow me to experience that in a way that doesn't feel like like death, so to speak. Like it doesn't feel like I'm actually not going to get out of there. Um, and, and some of these actually can feel like death. They're so, so significant and severe that they can feel so uh, scary to revisit that we eat sugar and, and process it away with this food or we, we escape with work or we, we literally can't get in there and feel these emotions because they're scary. So with another body there, um, and perhaps a technique that can be helpful, but we got to go back and we, we got to process this. We got to actually got to get with them. Um, and, and with enough practice, we can actually do it ourselves with enough stability, with enough resource. If we have a, the sort of mental, emotional resource, we can actually get in there and process a lot of this stuff ourselves. But it's, and I do it frequently uh, in, in my work, uh, I will sit with it and I can feel this knot in my in, in my sort of solar plexus, in the viscera, like you can actually feel this stuff and, and you can use your awareness and feel into it and allow it to process and it'll, it'll start moving. So this is actually real stuff. This is embodied visceral experiences. And sometimes it's emotion and sometimes they're con conjoined. Um, and sometimes there's mental processes that will kick on in response to some of these feelings. And so, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of, of, getting familiar with the territory and understanding how this stuff works. Why is it that when I feel this certain thing, my mind just starts going into hypervigilance, right? That's a process that we can understand. But if it's largely unconscious, then we're going to think that we're in control or that we're operating, but really it's a four-year-old that's operating and, and we're just kind of along for the ride. And this is why so many people can get hijacked in the grocery store and the post office or somebody cutting them off and they just lose it, right? And they can't get back under control because some part of them feels unsafe, um, uh, unrespected, unloved. And there's these hijacked processes that come on to try to establish some level of safety, security, connection, you know, uh, in the system. And so, and the mental is a big one in the West in particular, like we are just hijacked. We're basically cut off here and we're all head, you know, we're just thinking our way through the world and it takes some getting used to get back into the body, into the heart, into the belly, into the sacrum, into the, the hips, like to actually get down into our bodies a little bit. But when we do, then we can process these things. And in my experience, in my opinion, when we process, there may be thousands or millions of little things to process, but once we process it, it's kind of done. Like that, that little thing, whatever that was, we can process and then there's a, there's a more uh, integrated being here. A more adult version shows up. And again, in my experience, it's I'm doing this hundreds or thousands of times in my own system and a little bit of me starts to show up as a, as a more older, more integrated uh, person. So, so that's, I think the, the first thing is you got to get in there and you got to experience it. You got to feel it. And, and hopefully with resource and support that, that seems to be a, a huge factor in safety. Yeah. You have to be willing to both tolerate and accept whatever feelings are there, emotions are there so that they allow them to express themselves and move through the body. That's the only way to really release them. Otherwise, they, when they get buried is when 
those processes that you just mentioned getting triggered, getting activated, those occur when we don't take care of those feelings. What's wild is how hard that is sometimes. Like that, that, that's what I didn't realize, I think, as I got into this work, because I had this idea in my mind that I'm, you know, brave and I'm adventurous and I'm, I'll do whatever it takes to, to get where I want to go. And then what, you, what I realized was some of these things, yeah, I can get in there and I can process them, you know, that's not too bad. And then sometimes it, it's like, for whatever reason, it feels so uncomfortable, right? It's, it's the best way I can say it. Scary is not the right word, but it's, it's such a level of discomfort that you, you just don't go into it. And, and, and most of us are operating this way. Like this is what's leading to binge eating and, and, and excessive drinking and, and smoking and you know, these habits that really are there to bypass and avoid what's naturally coming up in the body on a consistent basis, right? Mm-hmm. So again, this is, this is what I mean. Like it's not a new year, new you. It's new year, new habits, new you. And how do we establish habits or, or a lifestyle? What's it's it's uncovering all the stuff that's creating the habits that that are unconscious, right? Like that's that's tough. This is tough work. I mean, I, I, I it really is. Can it's scary? It's hard, um, and it's the most worthwhile thing that I've ever done. And 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 it gives me such pleasure and passion to talk about it, to help people with it, to explore into it even though it's the scariest place to go. Yeah, one of the um uh one one of the uh realizations I've had is that I used to somewhat naively think that the problem with with people with health and longevity was a problem of education. In other mm-hmm. words, when people come to me and say I have this this illness, I want to get healthy, that it's just a matter of ex- a pointing out, well, you, you know, you shouldn't eat sugar, you know, that makes you old and that gives you heart disease and cancer and other things. And you give them the evidence for it and then they would change. But I'm realizing now that perhaps the greatest factor in this is not the education, but it's, it's the psychological things that you're mentioning in the complexities of humans, that it's not enough just to, to present the evidence, the best peer-reviewed articles aren't going to change this. So, what do we do? What do we do? What can we do to uh, make those changes happen psychologically? What are the what are the tools you use? What's cool is that we have the unconscious and we have the conscious, right? And and both can affect the other, right? So, if we've got unconscious processes and traumas and things that we don't even know about, like we really don't even know that they're there and they're controlling our behavior, our thoughts, our uh, our habits, etc., um, then we got to go and visit the unconscious world, and we got to get into the unconscious. And there's, I've even worked with um, uh, hypnotherapists that can do amazing stuff on that level, right? So there's there's so many ways. And again, this is where I think some of the indigenous plant medicines can actually come into play. There's a lot of ways we can get into that unconscious, right? Joe Dispenza's uh, developed a whole career out of tapping into this 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 type of reality. There's cool things that we can do there. And so exploring that unconscious world and bringing that conscious, um, that is really, really key. It may or may not even shift anything yet. It may just be bringing what we didn't know was there, all the gunk in the closet, out into the living room, right? You still got a messy house, but at least you know it's, what's there. We know it's under the bed, right? So that's one area is go dip into the unconscious and find out what's there. The other part is, is you can actually use the conscious to change the unconscious, right? So we have a negativity bias. Most of us are running somewhere around four to one negative thoughts 
um, about our environment, about the world, um, compared to the the positive, right? And that that's for safety reasons, right? If you're walking through the woods and there's bears and whatever, like we're constantly looking out for danger. That's how we survive. Well, we can flip that on its head. You know, we can do conscious practices. Look for the silver lining in anything and everything. In fact, we know, we all know these people. Somebody around us is like that super positive guy or gal that is just like, they can't be shaken. They're always positive. And it, oh, it's almost annoying how positive they are, right? Like I'm, I'm thinking of one person in, in my life specifically, and he's always been like this, always smile on his face. And so we can actually choose this stuff. And, and we may not be there. We may be in really, really negative land, like just swimming in negativity in terms of emotions and thoughts and expectations. We're just going to, the crazy thing is, is that if we have that expectation, we seem to create a reality that confirms that expectation back to us. That's what's wild. And I don't know how it works, but I've seen it over and over again. So we can become empowered and, and do the opposite, right? This is the whole, the secret, the movie, and, and some of this other sort of positivity stuff and, and envisioning and, and, and all this stuff is sort of tapping into that same idea. But, but even more practical, you can just go throughout your day and just catch yourself when you're negative thinking and flip it around. You can actually uh, do uh, gratitude journaling, right? When I go to the grocery store and I swipe my card or whatever I do to pay for my groceries, I can actually in that moment say, I'm really grateful that I can pay for this food, right? Like it doesn't have to be these big grandiose things that happen. It can be every day just starting to consciously bring awareness to, I'm actually lucky. You know, I, I got up this morning, I can walk. Sure, my knee hurts, yeah. Not ideal. I can focus on that knee pain or I can say, you know what? I can walk today. You know, it's a good day, right? These are conscious repatterning. And because of neuroplasticity, we can actually change the brain. We can change the neurons, right? The neurons that fire together, wire together. We now know, in fact, DNRS is a great um, sort of strategy, dynamic neural retraining system um, that Annie Hopper has created around this idea that has gotten people out of some really horrendous syndromes, right? So there's there's neuroplastic ways. This is the cool thing about humans. We are so adaptable. We can change things. We are, we are the most empowered beings on the planet. We can, we can totally shift our reality. We can change our environments, our external environments, our internal environments. We can change it, right? So no matter what circumstances you, you've been given, you can flip it on its head, right? So we can change the unconscious by going in and working some of that stuff. And we can change our conscious, which will shift our unconscious. So it's all working together. We just need to figure out how do we start working with some of this stuff. Um, and, and it's honestly, it's easier than I think than we realize, but it's a matter of where are the biggest levers to turn. And in my opinion, this is one of those, those areas. How do we change our thinking? How do we change our, our emotions, unconscious and our, and our beliefs? What are governing those things so that we can walk? And look, this is why I called the book Beyond Longevity, because yes, cool, longevity, great, awesome, living a long time. We need more elders in the world. There's a lot of value there. And we want to live healthier long lives. And even beyond that, I think there's a more important aspect, which is how do I become here today, right now? How do I show up happy? How do I show up vibrant and, and willing to live my life here today? Not thinking about what happens in 90 years or am I going to be healthy when I'm you know, 86? I want to be very, happy right now. Very, very good points. And um, this has been a, a very fascinating conversation, Jason, that we really greatly appreciate. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, if people want to reach you, can you uh, a way to reach you and mention your book one more time? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the book's called Beyond Longevity, um, and they can they can go to beyondlongevitybook.com, um, and we have some some uh, sort of extra giveaways and, and things to make um, to actually implement the strategies in the book. Like that's that's really the importance, right? As as you said, Doctor Lufkin, it's like it, the knowledge is great, but and we got to like put put some action behind it. We got to we got to change some things. So so that's the intention there. Um, and uh, they can go to. Uh, uh, Awakened Health Academy. That's where I have a lot of the, the interviews I do with uh, brilliant people like yourselves, and trying to bring out a lot of this um, this uh, new health information that is this flooding the airways. Um, and and I have a place for that as well. So um, I want to thank you guys for bringing me on, and 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 all the work that you guys do. Honestly, it's like. You guys do the hard work, and I just get to go read all the work that you guys do and try to put it together in my own way. So uh, I sincerely do appreciate all the work that you guys are doing um, in the world. It, it, it is so cool to see it finally coming out into the public in a new way. It doesn't have to go through the filtered medical system as it, as it did top down. It is now grassroots everywhere, and it's things like this that are honestly, in my opinion, going to change uh, what the next 20 years looks like. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jason. This is a thank you so much for all the work you're doing. And this book is great. Uh, everybody uh, go out and take a look at it. And uh, we hope to see you again on the program. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Bye bye. This is for general information and educational purposes only, and it's not intended to constitute or substitute for medical advice or counseling. The practice of medicine or the provision of health care diagnosis or treatment or the creation of a physi- physician, patient, or a clinical relationship. The use of this information is at their own, uh, own user's risk. If you find this to be on the value, please hit that like button to subscribe to support the work that we do on this channel. And we take the, your suggestions and advice very seriously, so please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel. Thanks for watching, and we hope to see you next time.